This is Life I Swear, where we share stories and reflections from Black women about trials in their lives that have helped them heal, connect, and process. Every week, we hold space for storytelling that both challenges and inspires us to be good to ourselves. I'm your host, Chloe Dulce Livueso. Today's episode is brought to you by Weekend Mood, a sustainable loungewear brand encouraging you to enjoy leisurely living every single day. Visit weekendmood.com, that's W-K-N-D-Mood.com, and check out their launch line of 100% premium linen robes and lifestyle accessories. Enjoy a 10% discount at checkout with your purchase with the code Life, I swear. Miriam Lum Martin. I have such a good time saying her name and flexing my franglais. And more than her name is her life journey. So Miriam has been my muse for some time. In my travels to and from the continent, Morocco has always been my favorite place to pass through. I've been there about 10 times now, and every time, I promise to always return. Marrakech specifically is one of those places that fully lives in color and art. Miriam is part West Indian, part Senegalese, a French woman who currently resides in Marrakech, where she is, I believe, the only black luxury hotel owner in the city. She is owner of Jan Tamzna, which is a true oasis. In this episode, Miriam shares her journey of taking a chance in a land and a dream unknown, what is required of her to assert her voice in a male-dominated world, and her connectedness to America's history of race through her ancestors' stories of aspiration. Miriam is a queen in her own right. She is also the author of a new coffee table book just released this fall titled Inside Marrakesh, Enchanting Homes and Gardens, which captures a marrying of contemporary design and Marrakesh's artistic heritage. You can join our community on Instagram at Life I Swear, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a review. They really make a difference. And now, let's get into it. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today. It is such an honor, so wonderful to have you. Um, As you know, I've told you this, I've been obsessively following you for about a year now. Um, I've always had this big dream of relocating to Morocco. One thing that I love about the place and places like Morocco and Marrakech specifically is that they're just full of étrangers and expats from around the world who've left home for one reason or another and decided to create home and design a life they love for themselves. So I'm wondering, to kick off our conversation, if you can tell us about your story and how you ended up in Morocco and why you left France, which was home to you previously, and why you decided to find a home in Marrakech. 
Chloe, well, thank you for inviting me. I did not plan to do anything which happened to me. It was just a, one thing after the other led to what was totally obvious. If I can give an advice to people is follow your intuition and never be totally afraid. There are things which happen in life and wow, they're not happening by coincidence, you know. So what happened is that in the mid 80s, so I was always dreaming to become an architect and I'm passionate about design and architecture. I went to architecture school. I had my French baccalaureate very young and I went to architecture school and everything which was creative was going extremely well. But to go into third year, you needed minor credits in math and physics, and I just couldn't deal with that. So I had to stop, and I went to law school and became a lawyer. I was a frustrated architect always. Since I was a child, I knew that I was here to build. This is what I build. My mother was from French West Indies, and my father is from West Africa, both living in Paris. My parents had this idea that one day they would like to have a, a family holiday house where we could all meet, but that their countries of origin were a bit far to go just for a weekend, and it would be so cool if we could find a place which was only three hours flight away. So I heard a lot about Marrakesh through a friend of mine. They wanted culture, they wanted great weather, they wanted, they wanted you know, excitement and adventure. They didn't look for like a boring country house, I would say. But one day I told them, look, if you're still interested, I would like to go and look for land. And my condition is that I want to be in charge of the project from A to Z. As they knew I was a frustrated architect, they said, okay. And I came to Marrakesh in December 85 to look for land. Fell in love with the place immediately. From the moment, I remember feeling like, you know, when you meet someone and it's love at first sight. I remember that the moment I put my foot on the tarmac going down from the plane, I had this kind of feeling, this place is going to change my life, you know. And I fell in love with the place. I found a piece of land and I sent a message to my parents who were on holidays in another part of the world. And I told them, well, please make sure that we can come back as soon as possible. I would like to show you this place. And we came back four weeks later and um, they bought a piece of land with an abandoned site. There were just four walls of concrete, no ceiling, nothing. So it was like a canvas, like a beginning of the canvas to change a lot. And uh, from then, every month I would be Marrakesh a week. So I was three weeks a month uh, a lawyer in Paris and one week a month a contractor, designer, self-taught architect in Marrakesh. And it's true that I did not realize how crazy this idea was, you know. But it was not that crazy because at that point, it was just for a, little, a holiday house. Later, it, beca it became more crazy when I saw that I should turn it into a bigger business. I was discovering all of the architecture, all of the craftsmanship. Morocco is absolutely fascinating, as you were saying, because, you know, it's such a rich country and it's at the crossroad of so many cultures. So it's on the mother continent of Africa, but at the same time, it has Arabic, Berber, 
sub-Saharan Africans, our colonial art deco. So for someone who's a little bit, who's as mixed as I am in terms of being a citizen of the world, it is really the ideal place because it has all these influences. All my friends were telling me, of course, they had come to the piece of land, they had understood what I was doing, and they were always complaining about the way they were spending their holidays. So we are late 80s, like 86, 87. They're saying it's horrible to go on holidays to hotels. Hotels are just fine for business. All these rooms, all these people around a pool, even if it's a fancy hotel, we don't like having all these people around. And when we rent villas, there's... You know, it's not holidays because there's plastic plates because the owners keep their nice things and there's no staff. And so I kept on hearing complaints about holidays. And at some point I thought, okay, I'm going to create the ideal holidays, a place which has good food, good service, but that you have to yourself and a very stylish place and try to create the ideal holidays. So off I went, and then it became really something a bit crazy when you think about it, because it had a business need of return on the investment. And I launched it with an oriental ball, a party which lasted for several days because my friends were flying in from many places of the world. And it was a costume party, and the party was extraordinary. All over, you know, we had pharaohs, we had the emperor of China, the theme with the oriental, oriental fantasy. No, oriental splendor, exactly, oriental splendor. And this, another example of something which consequences I never envisioned. This party was so phenomenal. I had friends arriving from New York and London and Los Angeles and Geneva and, and Munich and Vienna. And, and this is how it started. And it's never stopped. And then we started having celebrities. So on the American side, it was very famous. It was like, you know, Brad Pitt and people like that. So in France, I had very much a corporate top, top, top CEOs clientele coming with their top clients. And then sometimes the clients would come back on an individual basis for, you know, family reunions or with their own board. And in uh, Italy, I had the most famous families. In the US, I had either very old, well-established families or the movie stars. Then we started also having uh, a lot of fashion shoots like Peter Lindbergh, did iconic photo, an iconic photo of Elena Christensen in an Art Deco spirit, naked on a, on a table, only covered with jewelry. It was in our dining room. This is how it happened. But I did not understand myself what was happening, you know? It was just like so crazy, the telephone, because it was all telephone and fax, and it never stopped. And my mother would call me exasperated telling me when can I go on holidays in my own house? And I would look at the books and I would tell her maybe in seven months, I have two nights, but you can stay three nights. And this changed my life because I was still a lawyer. So I was, once the houses were finished, I would come once a month. I had a very good team on board. So we would create these kind of magical moments. And for these people, many of them were really, you know, I would say quite affluent, 
if not extremely, what was special was not the usual five-star luxury, but the attention to details and the fact that it was an experience just for themselves. And this became the ultimate luxury. I remember Giorgio Armani came several times to our house. The first time he came, I knew that he was very picky about style, that he was very, you know, um, he had come with his um, Italian hams and Parmigiano and things like that. And when he left, he said, oh, the food is so good. Next time I don't come with my own food. But I remember that when he, perfect gentleman, when he arrived, I showed him around. And I remember showing him around and asking him, so do you like it? And he said, it's perfect. I wouldn't change anything. And it was really an important lesson for me. I don't know if you say lesson in English, but an important, I learned a lot with some of these clients because I understood that in life, if you do something authentic, it is some, sometimes much more important than the expected elements of luxury connected to things which are expensive. You know, it's just a character. And people who know it all and have it all, most of them, the authenticity of the experience is what they will remember. So I married an American. My husband was never crazy, crazy about Paris. He was there because I was there. And he was traveling for his work. Our children were born in Paris. And in 95, so I'm still in Paris, but I had left the bar. Um, we decided to leave Paris in 95 because there were horrendous strikes. And uh, we moved to Marrakesh in uh, summer 96. We never left. And we are like, what, 24 years later? Uh, people thought I was out of my mind. And they were telling me, you're moving, you're a black woman moving into a uh, Arabic country where, you know, it's quite misogyne, you know, and it can be quite racist and you don't speak the language. How can you move to a country you don't know, which is not yours, and you think you're going to start a business, you know? <laughs> and uh, um, I said, well, I don't see what's impossible there. Yeah. Here we are, you yeah. know? I love that. So how has it been living in Marrakesh as a black woman? People just don't want to mess with me. (laughs) (laughs) When I was building the first house of my parents and the second house too, I was working with a lot of craftsmen. And in the culture here, people, uh, things have to be very ornate. And I like things to be very simple. So I remember between my trips, often, you know, I would leave sketches of what I wanted to be done for a fireplace or something. And then I would come back and the sample would have nothing to do with what I had said. And they would tell me before I see the sample, we did it even better. And I would say, I'm not interested and I will not pay you if it's not exactly what I asked. So you wasted your time. You also wasted mine, but you wasted your time and your money. This is how I started imposing my view Mm -hmm. through working with craftsmen. Understanding that 
there should be no margin for discussion mm-hmm. because then they take advantage of you not knowing what you want. Yeah, I think that's just a good principle for life as well as a woman. <laughs> no margin. Yeah, there's no option there, you know. But it is true that it's a different, you know, it's a different culture and you might see people on the street arguing. I mean, you don't understand what they're saying, but the the tone is very high and sounds very aggressive. You think, oh my God, they're going to pull a gun. And then they end up, you know, laughing and having tea together, you know? So it's a different culture. I was obsessed, obsessed with getting ready. and, And my husband was designing the gardens because he's very much into nature. And he would tell me, you know, I'm ashamed of the way you speak to people on the construction site. I'm not coming near the the house. This is really when you realize the difference between what a woman needs to do and a man can do to arrive to the same result, Mm -hmm. you know? I would tell him, yes, of course, you know, with your blue eyes and soft voices and being an American, they are going to do what you do. With me being an African woman, if I don't scream louder, nothing is going to move. And it is something which was very obvious then. Did your husband at the time understand where you were coming from? He still doesn't approve. (laughs) 20 years later, he still doesn't approve when I'm very authoritarian with people. He still thinks that, you know, this is not the way you... I mean, it's a fact, you know. Us women, in particular circumstances, there are different ways to get where we want. If Mm -hmm. I was still a lawyer in Paris, in a firm where I am, maybe uh, there's some white lawyers, black lawyers, I would never have to scream because it's about having, knowing how to argue your case. But Mm -hmm. here it's different because, you know, I was also working with people who are not from a culture where they're used to take orders from women. It's not part of their culture, you know? So it would be very different because, you know, if I was in Casablanca in a law firm or in a thing where everybody has the same kind of education and the same kind of exposure to the world, that's no problem. But on a construction site, it is very different. Yeah, and is that also the aggression in which you feel is necessary on the construction site? Does that come natural to you? I don't take it as aggression. I take it as needing to get things done with mm-hmm. a certain date and a needed discipline. I, probably from the, from the outside in, from the male's perspective, they're not used to women um, carrying themselves in that way. And so yes. they see women under this tone of aggression. Yes, it would be also not the same if it was a white woman treating them like this. Oh, yeah. Easier for me, in a way. It was easier for me because they couldn't, they couldn't put it on the kind of colonial arrogance that some mm-hmm. French people have towards uh, Moroccans still, you know? Mm-hmm. I have seen kind of more uh, racist cliches in France, but with the administration, for example. My, my husband has a French citizenship because of me being French and I'm black and his last name is Martin. And if you pronounce it, the French name, it's Martin, which is as popular as Smith and Jones in France. Mm-hmm. 
So you imagine when we would arrive in the administration for you know the papers and immigration, where most people are have all sorts of degrees of melanin, and here's my husband with his blue eyes, and he's sitting next to me, and the people taking care of our file ignore me and only look at him thinking that he's the white guy, the French guy, Monsieur Martin, who is going to give the French citizenship mm -hmm. to probably this immigrant from Africa. At first, with a big smile, I would say, I am the French one, and he doesn't understand what you're saying. <laughs> he speaks perfect French now, mm -hmm. but in the beginning he did not, you know. They didn't get it immediately, you know. Mm -hmm. It continued looking at him and speaking to him. And then I would start, you know, sometimes being quite authoritarian. And then they would stop messing around after two or three attempts, you know. But it was a systematic cliche. In the immigration uh, office, one is black, one is white. It has to be the white one wanting to give, needing to give the European citizenship. Mm -hmm. It cannot be the other way around. Because they're not used to black people being in places of privilege. Yes, yes. Very lucky to be always in a position where I could defend myself. Mm -hmm. And not only defend, but also attack sometimes. Mm -hmm. What was it like dealing with racism in France when you were younger? I was always the only black woman, the only black girl, and I was always ahead. In the last uh, school I was, after the class, at the end, after dinner, we would gather, you know, all the girls would speak before going to, to their rooms. It was lovely boarding school. And one day we were about, I would say, 12 girls and talking about all sorts of things. And there's a girl who asked me, she said, oh, Marianne, you're, you know, you're, you're probably the, the first black person I know. And um, I can ask this to you because you're different. So, you know, this mm -hmm. kind of, but can you explain to me, how can people, so we are in, in baccalaureate, huh? she's 18, I'm 16. And she says, uh, how can you explain that, you know, a white and a black person can have a relationship? Because to me, it's just like if you wanted to mate a dog and a horse. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, yes. No. Imagine. So she was coming from, I know she was coming from the countryside, from a family which was into agriculture big time, you know, but still. This is why probably for her, you know, talking about animals on a farm was yeah. the, the only example she could find. But I was so stunned by that, that instead of answering her, I looked at the other girls, everybody's white, of course, and I asked the other girls, what would you answer? And mm -hmm. then I sent back to them the horror of the question. And then they had to, re and then they all realized they were petrified by this horrible, this question mm -hmm. made no sense. And I let them debate among themselves. And I was just there, you know, um, mm -hmm. listening to them. And it also taught me that in some situations, it's very important to send back the subject to the person who initiated it so mm -hmm. they can realize how 
much. It makes nonsense, you know? So now that we are in a new time battling our own racial injustices now, I'm curious as to, as a black French woman living in Morocco, um, there's so many cultural and racial influences in your life now. But how do you feel connected to the movement that's happening here in the U.S. around race? I've been passionate about American history and politics all my life, you know. Maybe it is because being half West Indian and having my family very connected to politics and the history of the family connected to ancestors being enslaved and in one generation becoming a lawyer and sitting at the French, being elected to the French Congress, being a friend of W.E.B. Dubois, organizing the first Pan-African Congress in 1919. And there's a lot, I mean, the family of, um, the history of my uh, mother's family could be, there's at least three people who could have books written about them. And because of the parallel of the kind of plantation culture between the history of the United States and the history of my own family, I have always been very interested in American history. So uh, what is going on here is, uh, I mean, here I'm saying the U.S. is just like if it was in the garden, because I'm totally connected. I'm totally interested in politics, and it's not because... I'm married to an American and I have American children. My children are French-American. and But it is just because America is a key part of the planet. So any person with an open, educated mind should be worried about what is going on in the U.S., what kind of decisions are being made for climate, for environment, for human rights. Uh, United States has been leading the free world for so long. So we should all be concerned about what is happening in the U.S. And I'm following everything, everything, everything. John Lewis wrote that Black children were not allowed to aspire. They could not borrow books in a library. I mean, he just died. He was 80. When he was a child, he was not allowed to aspire. Black children would go into, how do you say, the technical schools, you know, when you learn how to, yeah, when white children can go to high school. And this was not so long ago. And as I was reading this, I was understanding that in fact, the father of my great-grandfather, the one who was freed, never stopped aspiring. And he was freed at 16, and uh, he's, uh, he stayed on the same uh, farm where he was born. And uh, he started being paid because there was no more free labor. And then when his then boss and previously, in quote, owner, told him that he was going to sell the farm because he wanted to go back to, to France, my ancestor asked him, how much are you going to sell it for? And he bought the farm and he never stopped. And, you know, as I was reading John Lewis' story and thinking about him, I realized our big chance was that we could aspire. And it was not only aspiring because we turned it into reality. So he owned his own property, but he wanted to learn how to read and write. That was his obsession. And 
as the abolition of slavery made white middle class and very poor because they didn't have free labor anymore, the rich ones stayed rich, he had this white guy knocking at the gates of the property every day begging for food. So after a while, he told him, why don't you move here? You'll teach me how to read and write and I'll feed you and you can stay here. So in a quite amazing twist of history, here's my ancestor who's black living in a big house when this white guy is living in the former slave quarters. And this white guy is teaching him how to read and write in the only book they had access to, which was Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And when my ancestor had his first son, he called him by a name of the book, which was Achilles. And in one generation, Achilles became a, a lawyer and was elected to the French Congress. But why? Because they always thought it was possible, you know? And it's this the, having in your imagination no limits which makes the difference. It's probably the same way I thought I could run a construction site with, you know, in Morocco, in a country which is not mine. Um, it's just this sense of why not? Why not? And so this Achilles was sitting in the, in the French Congress. He was elected several times. I think he stayed for 11 years in total and after he was ill. I was always very interested in knowing and learning about history and our family history. So my grandmother had the front cover of Le Monde, uh, the French like New York Times when she was 25. And she spoke in French Congress when she was 25 and she obtained what she had asked. I think that um, all of them never thought I can't do that. This is something which is extremely important. And I don't say that it would have been possible in the US where the segregation was so much more violent mm -hmm. than it was in other parts of the world. But we are what we are today because of all these phenomenal ancestors who were free to aspire. Mm -hmm. But in their generation, there were exceptions also. Mm -hmm. Because some people carried the weight of you know, their history, like my last surviving aunt was telling me that once the slavery was abolished in West Indies, so many former enslaved people did not want to work in agriculture anymore because for them it was too painful. Mm -hmm. And my ancestor said, no, this, I do this very well and I'm staying here. And he ended up being a wealthy man and he kept on buying land. And in fact, it's through the inheritance of land sold, my share of it, that I was able to buy my land in Morocco. Mm. So I'm especially uh, a land which has multiplied by value many, many times. So I'm especially grateful. They aspired. And, you know, I think it must be horrible to think that you cannot aspire. Because yeah. at, at, my, at my tiny level... I remember that when I realized that I could not become an architect because I was so bad at math and physics, I went into some kind of depression because it was just like if my whole world was crumbling down because this is what I wanted to do in life. And I could not. So I had to do something else and I did well in something else and then I could come back 
to what I really wanted to do. But it must be horrible to know that you cannot aspire. You yeah. don't even have the freedom to imagine what you could do. I think that's still the case for so many, particularly Black people around the world. The history of oppression can limit our faith in possibility. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, so if there are young, aspiring, hopeful Black women listening to this right now, what words of encouragement would you give them to expand the way they aspire or how much they aspire to? I love one thing you said is if you do things authentically and organically, it will reap consequences you never imagined. First of all, I think that the Black female history is full of examples of women who never took no for an answer and who never think things were impossible. I would tell people be as creative as possible because if you're in a hostile environment, there are too many people to change. Mm -hmm. There are too many people to change on the way to move forward. Try to find what makes you different and cultivate it always, always, always. What do you say to women who have a fear of leaping, leaping into their dreams? I find that we're often more afraid of success than failure. If you keep on dreaming and never even try to turn it into reality, it must be eating you from inside at some mm -hmm. point, you know? Yeah, it's one thing to be a dreamer, but to be a dreamer and an executor, you have to, like you said, never take no for an answer not even your dreams. Yeah, exactly, exactly. At some point you have to assess if the dream is damaging or not. Yeah, do you mean not necessarily the dream, but the dream that is not manifested? Exactly. Got it, got it. Well, thank you, thank you, Miriam. This has been a pleasure. I will say, for myself at least, you are a shining star of what it is to really aspire. Um, and I could only dream and aspire so big. I appreciate watching you from afar and seeing all of the things that you've done up into this point of your life journey and all of the things you have ahead. I look forward to. Um, this has been Miriam Lum Martin. She is author and curator of Inside Marrakesh, Enchanting Homes and Gardens. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you stick with us for the last two weeks of this year and this season. Thank you for listening to Life I Swear. You can follow Life I Swear on Instagram. And if you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast fix. And learn more at lifeiswear.com. I hope you join me next week for another episode. In the meantime, be well, friend.